Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, 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 listeners, and welcome to another episode of the AWS Tech Chat. AWS Tech Chat, episode 29, in fact. Uh, for those of you who don't recognize this unique voice, I'm Dean Samuels, AWS Solutions Architect Manager, coming to you from Hong Kong. Uh, today's actually a very special occasion as we're fortunate to be joined uh, by a new voice on the podcast, uh, Gabe uh, Hollenby. Uh, Gabe's actually a member of our super entertaining and knowledgeable technical evangelism team and he's based out of Singapore. Uh, Gabe, do you want to say a bit more to introduce yourself, perhaps starting with what is a technical evangelist? Sure. Hello, everyone. As Dean said, my name is Gabe Hollenby, and Dean points to you for pronouncing my last name correctly, spot on. No problem. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, uh, as Dean mentioned, I'm a technical evangelist. I cover the APAC region here for AWS. It's a bit of an unusual title, but all it means is that I'm a software developer who also enjoys putting presentations together writing blog posts, and of course, co-hosting podcasts. I've been a listener of Tech Chat for a while, and it's really cool to be on the other end of the headphones now, sitting in front of a microphone. So uh, thanks for having me on board. No problem, Gabe, and uh, uh, thanks for that explanation on, on your role. Um, I must say, when you said technical evangelist, uh, I imagined you being on TV, uh, spreading the gospel, and it's actually kind of spot on as you do spread the gospel, the gospel of the cloud, right? Amen. But I don't want to get into any religious wars here. You know, uh, I think the AWS cloud is the greatest, but of course, cloud computing in general is really where it's at. Absolutely. Um, and, and you've actually been on TV as well, because uh, the first time we met a couple of months ago was actually at the uh, AWS Sydney Summit, where we did the Twitch live TV shoot together, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was a great experience to be involved and another way to deliver content for our customers and listeners. Uh, it was a Wonderful event with a lot of people. Yep, and uh, obviously great chemistry here because here we are again, uh, uh, not so much in a TV format, but uh, having you here on the uh, podcast in the audio format. And, you know, it'll be great to partner with you uh, going forward. Um, you've actually been with us um, for about six months now, Gabe, um, and I'm always interested to hear why uh, people, uh, people join us. Um, so can you maybe just tell us a little bit about why you made the decision to join AWS? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the short answer is I saw this role and got really excited because uh, for a long time, I've had my eye on a developer relations or you know developer evangelism style position. Uh, and it's uh, one of those occasions where uh, about, I don't know, last November or so, I saw a uh, spam from LinkedIn, but I read it and it had a list of you know, jobs you might be interested in. And this was one of them. Uh, and that's what got me excited. You know, uh, I've been a computer nerd my whole life, but my degree is actually in English, uh, in creative writing. So I've sort of always been interested in the intersection between humans or people and technology. And that I think fits really well with my role as an evangelist because not only do I write a lot of code, build demos, et cetera, but I also write blog posts, uh, speak at conferences, uh, organize meetups at user groups, that sort of stuff. So it's a nice mix and it's a wonderful role and I've been really enjoying it so far. 
That's awesome uh, to hear. And it's always great to bring in uh, not only the strong technical talent uh, folks, but also ones that come from a very diverse background, uh, you know, like like such as yours. And, you know, what it really does is bring that real world experience to the uh, AWS team to really help better support our customers and uh, and partners as well. Yeah, I totally agree. So uh, we've got introductions out of the way. Uh, let's move on with the show, shall we? I think we should. Um, what do you think we should start with? So... I think it's good to start with a joke. I like how you opened the last show with a joke. And I'll admit, I'm a sucker for bad jokes. So can I try another terrible but awesome programmer joke on you? Uh, Okay, sure, I cautiously say, but I guess as long as you keep it clean. Always. So uh, instead of thinking about programming, though, this one's going to be about networking. So I would tell you a joke about UDP, but you might not get it. Oh, <laughs> nice one. I get it. Uh, uh, well, how about this? I'll tell you a TCP joke over and over again until you get it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. That's a taste of my own medicine right there. I can confirm. I get it. You don't need to retransmit that joke. Please don't tell me again. In fact, maybe we should just move right along. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> so let's talk about some upcoming events in AWS land around the world. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good segue actually into the into the events because um, we're actually just going through our uh, annual AWS Summit series, which is essentially um, a set of marquee events that we host in various cities um, around the world. Um, there's actually a few that we've uh, completed recently. We actually mentioned the AWS Sydney Summit where the two of us met a, a couple of months ago. Um, but we also have the um, AWS Summit coming up in Hong Kong, uh, obviously a personal favorite uh, of mine uh, at the end of July, um, as well as some significant uh, summits happening in Paris on June 19th. Um, there's a public sector summit in Washington, D.C. on June 20th and 21st. Um, and we also have a New York summit on July 16th and, and 17th. So we, we try to um, run these summits in, in, in most of the uh, um, uh, 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 regions that we, we operate in, whether it's across APAC or Europe and, and, and the Americas. Um, uh, so I would advise to our listeners to, to hop online, you know, do a search for AWS summits, and you should be able to see um, if there is a summit coming to a city near you. Um, and besides, and of course, our, if, there, uh, if there was already a summit in your local city and you missed it, we tend to uh, get content from those summits up online. So don't despair. You might be able to find uh, recordings of talks from those summits already online. That's a, a great point, actually. Yeah, we do have our Amazon Web Services YouTube channel um, where a lot of those summits uh, uh, sessions are recorded, like you mentioned there, Gabe. And we also have a SlideShare uh, 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 channel where we actually uh, upload our uh, presentations uh, from those summits as well. For the, so absolutely, for those of uh, our listeners who couldn't make a summit or there's not one near your location, uh, you won't miss out. Um, like you said, hop online, search our channels, and you should be able to get access to the content. And, and, and obviously, uh, besides our in-person events, we're always looking at running uh, online tech talks on all sorts of topics, again, to cater for a wide, a wider variety of audience members, especially when they're geographically um, uh, dispersed. So um, actually, in the remainder of June, we have over 20 sessions available. Uh, for example, there's some upcoming online talks about de-risking enterprise cloud migrations, getting started with real-time streaming data. Um, we actually have an, a step-by-step guide on migrating from Oracle to Amazon Aurora, you know, setting up things like CICD pipelines for deploying containers, and much, much more. 
uh, what I'd actually advise our listeners to do is simply jump onto your favorite search engine and just do a search for AWS events. Um, and it should take you to our main website where we have an events page. Uh, of course, you can also search on our, um, our, our main website for those events as well. And uh, I would be amiss, uh, Gabe, if I didn't mention, of course, our uh primary marquee, um, you know, huge uh, event that we run um, uh, every year, uh, reInvent. Um, yes. You know, reInvent uh, registration for 2018 is now open. Uh, I can only remember, uh, it feels like yesterday, To be, in fact, when uh, we had reInvent 2017. Uh, I was fortunate to, uh, enough to be able to attend that. It was an awesome experience. And, and this year will actually be our seventh year hosting reInvent uh, in Las Vegas. And once again, you can expect lots of in-depth technical deep dive sessions, hands-on workshops, exciting keynote announcements, which is always uh, a lot of fun, and of course, a lot more. Um, now, it was interesting when I was at reInvent last year, we actually built a custom designed uh, pedestrian bridge um, and essentially um, was allowing us to connect from the main uh, event venue um, to the location of the after party. So there were actually tens of thousands of attendees that could get quickly and safely between the locations. It was actually pretty I, impressive. Yeah, and, yeah, I saw pictures yeah. of it. Uh, it looked really, really, really cool. Yeah, it was. I can't wait to see what we do uh, this year. You know, being in the seventh year, it's just getting bigger and better each year. And once again, I recommend our listeners to um, hop online, do a search for reInvent 2018 and uh, look at uh, registering and attending. Maybe a personal rocket transport? <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> uh, what about on the stats side, Gabe? Yeah, so uh, on the stats side... Our global network of AWS Edge locations now consists of 117 points of presence uh, in 56 cities across 25 countries around the world. And that's because we recently added another Edge location in Tokyo, bringing the total number of Edge locations there up to eight. And uh, speaking of the upcoming public sector summit, one area in the public sector that AWS invests a lot in is education. Uh, we have a program called AWS Educate, and it supports educators and students in their cloud education efforts. Uh, we have more than 1,500 institutions around the world. Our members of AWS Educate, including Carnegie Mellon University, Cornell Tech, Seoul National University, and the National College of Ireland, and hundreds of thousands of students have joined AWS Educate since its launch. Uh, the benefits from being a member of the program include annually renewable AWS credits, free online training courses, educational collaboration tools, and more. Uh, so if you're a student or an educator and you haven't checked it out yet, you definitely should. I just wanted to mention that. Absolutely. It's always good to hear about the uh, the global and regional programs we run around educating uh, uh, new folks that are coming to the cloud or even the established uh, folks that have been using uh, cloud platforms for quite some time. You know, AWS Educate is a great program um, to really support these uh, uh, tertiary institutions in not only focusing on the technical side, but just around the business value of, uh, of moving to the cloud. Um, we run many regional-based uh, programs as well. So, you know, please reach out to your uh, local AWS team to find out how you can actually learn more um, in your, in your uh, uh, regions. Yeah, and, you know, just tying this all together, speaking of summits and statistics, uh, the AWS Summit in Stockholm happened recently. And one of our customers who came up on stage there was Supercell Games. Right. Now, uh, I thought this was cool because if you're into mobile gaming, uh, and I am, there's a chance that you've heard of their games, right? Clash of Clans is really popular. Uh, Clash Royale is one that I started playing recently. 
Uh, and their head of engineering at Supercell mentioned they power their games on over 5,000 servers and 600 database instances running on AWS. You heard me right, 600 database instances. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and they ingest over five terabytes of game data event, uh, sorry, game event data uh, per day. Uh, and that's from over 100 million daily active users. Uh, so it's pretty impressive numbers there. And what I think is nice is it's a cool reminder about the power and scale of cloud computing and, and the enabling uh, nature of it and how it brings to businesses the uh, ability to not have to worry about that stuff that they used to have to worry about when it comes to scaling. Uh, and including game companies, right? It's not just the uh, the enterprises of the world that get to leverage this massive scale. In fact, I think some of the largest users of uh, cloud computing uh, scalability are gaming entertainment companies. Uh, in fact, more than 90% of the world's big public uh, game companies, including Activision, Ubisoft, and Supercell, are using AWS. That's uh, some awesome stats there uh, that you mentioned. Yeah, like like you indicated, Gabe. Uh, uh, you know, to see that capability for these organisations to scale from fairly minimal um, uh, IT resources to supporting, you know, those millions. In fact, you mentioned hundred million daily users, and uh, just providing that flexibility and scalability there uh, just allows them to focus on, you know, developing games rather than worrying about the infrastructure to support um, those games that they are actually uh, running. So it's uh, yeah, some interesting stats you shared. Yeah. So, so um, we spoke a little bit about the stats uh, side of things, um, uh, Gabe, but it'd be interesting to maybe have a discussion around uh, some of the recent announcements, uh, a lot of the major announcements anyway. Um, you know, before we maybe get into what was recently announced, though, uh, I want to ask you, Gabe, by uh, being new to Amazon, have you heard of the phrase that it's always day one at Amazon? I have. And, you know, even though I've been here for six months, it's still day one for me and it is for everyone. And that's something that's sort of baked into the blood of all of us Amazonians. Uh, but yeah, you know, you should tell us some more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we definitely uh, do see ourselves as a day one organization. And what we'd mean by that um, uh, is that um, at Amazon and in turn here at AWS, uh, we continue to operate like a startup always focused on the customer and always looking on ways to innovate on behalf of our customer. Uh, the customer always wants something better, um, as you know, being from the customer side, Gabe. Um, and we want to focus on not just keeping people happy, but really delighting them. And that really drives innovation. Uh, you know, back in 2017, we released 1,430 new services and features. And all of these releases were really driven by feedback from customers such as yourself uh, at the time. And so it really allows customers to focus on what adds value to their business and really how to differentiate themselves. And so that's why we consider ourselves as being customer obsessed. And, and you're probably asking, okay, so that's day one, but what does day two mean? Um, you know, for us, we see uh, day two, a day two organization as really being in stasis. Uh, and what will happen, though, if you start, you stop to innovate on behalf of the customers, that stasis will be followed by irrelevance. And that irrelevance will then be followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. So, we yes, we that. do take our day one attitude very seriously. We totally do. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, one of our buildings in Seattle is even named Day One, right? Uh, that is correct. Uh, we actually do come up with some very creative names of our buildings um, in uh, in Amazon. We'll probably have to do another episode uh, of this tech chat that really focuses on some of our building names because the backstory be behind some of those names is quite uh, intriguing. 
Uh, but let's get into the watch new. Uh, I understand we recently did make some cool uh, general and uh, general availability um, launches. Yeah, we did. Uh, one of the ones uh, that's pretty exciting is Amazon Neptune is now generally available. I was just saying, talk about creative names, uh, Amazon Neptune. Oh, yeah, exactly. It is a cool name. And in fact, I don't know the origin of this one. Uh, but uh, it's a fast, reliable graph database service that makes it easy to build and run apps that work with highly connected data sets. Uh, it was purpose-built for this, uh, so I know it's really fast. Uh, I was recently in Tel Aviv, and I got to sit down with some people from the Neptune team and get a rundown of the service from them, and I was really impressed with what it can do. Uh, it supports popular graph models, um, both uh, Property Graph and W3C's resource definition framework, and their respective query languages, uh, Apache, Tinkerpop, Gremlin, uh, and Sparkle. Yeah, I really love those names. I actually remember uh, doing a, an earlier Tech Chat podcast uh, with Dr. Pete, and we we're going through uh, some of the features of Amazon uh, Neptune. Uh, you know, talking about Tinkerpop and, and Sparkle and all these other fascinating uh, names. So it's great to hear that it is now generally available and available to all of our customers around the globe. Yeah, uh, and so just to dig into it a little bit more, uh, you know, SQL queries for highly connected data sets are complex and they're really hard uh, typically to tune for performance. Uh, and so with Neptune, uh, you can use these uh, open popular graph query languages to execute queries uh, easily and they perform really well on connected data. Uh, and this should significantly reduce uh, your code complexity uh, and it should allow you to quickly create application set process relationships. These are things like recommendation engines, fraud detection, drug discovery, precision medicine, social feeds, uh, or law enforcement applications. Right. Okay. I, I mean, customers have been being able to run uh, graph databases on AWS for quite some time. Uh, you know, whether it's in the EC2 or in container-based infrastructure. You know, why would customers look at moving to uh, an Amazon Neptune implementation of a graph database? Well, I think there's a few reasons. Uh, one, of course, is that Neptune is fully managed, so you don't need to worry about uh, handling that undifferentiated heavy lifting yourself. Sorry to interrupt there, uh, Gabe. I love that term, the undifferentiated heavy lifting. Um, oh, yeah. Making sure I mean, that we talk uh, about that constantly. Yeah. Yeah, and this is you know this is just more of the same. You know, why should you have to manage uh, your graph databases yourself? I mean, the RDS uh, is you know a hugely popular service for us. You know, Amazon Aurora being one of our fastest uh, growing services ever at AWS. Uh, and I think, you know, Neptune is no different. Now we have a graph database uh, that's also available in a fully managed fashion. And the other is that it's really fast. You know, it was made to uh, handle queries very quickly. So uh, I saw some uh, pretty impressive uh, performance metrics back when I was getting a presentation. Uh, and that's no surprise that, you know, customers uh, like Samsung, Thomson Reuters, Pearson, Intuit, Siemens, AstraZeneca, FINRA. I mean, I could go on and on, right? Customers from uh, every possible vertical uh, have tried out Neptune uh, during its preview phase. And now it's production ready and ready for everyone's graph applications. Yeah, and it's available in several regions uh, as well. So uh, to the listeners, make sure you jump online and, and check it out. Um, and, and Gabe, like I did mention, Dr. Pete and I uh, covered uh, various types of databases in a previous uh, uh, tech chat. But maybe just to recap, can you uh, just explain what is the difference or, or more so what, what are the specific use cases where customers may use a relational database versus a NoSQL database versus graph databases? Yeah, sure. Uh, graph databases are best used for cases where you have a network of relationships uh, between data. For example, a friend graph on Facebook, uh, or even for fraud detection cases like uh, across a series of transactions, uh, credit cards, IP addresses, etc. 
for a payment processing company, for example. Uh, NoSQL databases uh, typically offer really fast lookups uh, and usually flexible data schemas. So they're good for things like a product catalog for popular websites like, say, Amazon.com. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> relational databases are usually well-suited for online transactional workloads with fixed schemas like, say, banking or sales systems. Right. So I guess you know, it comes down to the fact that AWS users uh, now really have another powerful arrow, I guess, in their quiver for database choice in the cloud. Um, yeah. And that, 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 that's, that's fantastic. It's all about choice, right? And, and really choosing the best technology to, to meet the, uh, the business requirements of the customer. You got it. Uh, and, you know, that's not the only thing. Uh, we have other new services that just became generally available recently as well. Yeah, we do um, actually, and and this is this has actually stirred up quite a lot of excitement with our uh, with our customers. Uh, you know, uh, last year we actually um, announced a service called the uh, Amazon um, Elastic Kubernetes uh, service. Um, so it was essentially another way of running managed containers um, uh, in the cloud. So we actually um, made this generally available um, as of uh, last week, actually, I believe, uh, or, or just very recently. And before I get into the Amazon uh, um, yeah, EKS or the Amazon Elastic Kubernetes service, I might want to take a step back, Gabe, and, and just maybe talk a little bit about the overall evolution of computing. Um, because it is important to remember where uh, the history comes from, uh, you know, running your applications uh, um, uh, somewhere. Now, whether you're on cloud, you're off cloud, you're on premise, you're in a colo, you're at home, you're at your desk, you're in front of your laptop, you're on your mobile phone. Um, at the end of the day, code and applications need to actually run somewhere. Uh, there's sometimes this misconception that the cloud is a magical place that, uh, yeah. you know, the laws of physics don't apply and uh, the fact that these uh, applications can run on this magical uh, infrastructure, it's not quite the case. At the end of the day, these applications, this code runs on servers. You know? Now, the servers uh, could be actually configured either in a bare metal uh, configuration, in virtual machines, in containers, and what we're seeing now is in a serverless architecture as well. And so when we talk about servers, um, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, bare, head, bare metal configuration, maybe things that uh, folks out there are very used to at the moment. So you have a particular uh, device or a machine where you deploy your operating system and your application on top. We've actually introduced a um, Amazon, uh, Amazon Web Services um, uh, technology called the Amazon EC2 Bare Metal Instance that essentially That's allows right. customers to actually run servers. So they have a choice of de deploying whatever type of uh, configuration they require on top of this, um, uh, on top of this platform. So if they want control over the, uh, you know, the virtualization layer themselves, then the EC2 bare metal instances would be what they'd like to pick. Exactly right. Exactly. And, and then we've moved into, uh, you know, the virtual machine environment, obviously technology that's been around for quite some time. Um, you know, Amazon EC2 is probably the most common uh, service that operates in this space as far as the AWS platform is concerned. Um, it was actually one of the three uh, first three uh, services we uh, we launched. I'm going to test you here, Gabe. Uh, can you give me the name of another uh, um, Amazon Web Services uh uh, technology that we launched in the same year as EC2. Oh, I wish that smiles came through in podcast because I was smiling while you were asking me that. I think I know the answer. Um, I think the other two were SQS, uh, our, our simple queuing service, and Amazon S3. Yeah, spot on. There you go. Yes. It's usually the SQS one that uh, um, challenges people, but uh, you know, obviously you know your history. But yes, yeah, so well, I've, been, I've been a customer since the beginning. There you go. There you go. Uh, you've probably got an EC2 instance that you've been running since 2006. 
No, gosh, no. I've uh, I've shut those all down. It's all about right. serverless now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and speaking of serverless, you know, before we we get into the serverless um, uh, architecture, we moved into containers. Um, so yes. you got servers to virtual machines to containers, and you know. Containers is all about, um, you know, running programs or processes in an existing operating system. So where you have virtual machines that might run on top of a operating system in a hypervisor, you have these containers that really run as these programs in the operating system. And it really, there's several benefits of containers, whether it's around um, increasing the density um, uh, of your, uh, your your environments that can be run in a particular, uh, particular platform, um, around portability, so whether you're running your application on cloud or off cloud, containers makes it very easy to port across those um, those various applications in a particular image uh, image format. And of course, we've got various services that operate in this space, whether it's the um, Amazon Elastic Kubernetes service, which I just mentioned, and also um, our Amazon Elastic Container service, which, which is another option for customers to run container-based technology in AWS. Um, and then you spoke about, uh, well, we spoke about serverless, Gabe, and, and, and really ser serverless is the whole idea that um, uh, developers um, and customers don't have to worry about managing underlying infrastructure, whether it's operating systems and doing all the patching, whether it's container-based technology and making sure that's configured correctly. You know, services like AWS Lambda and the Amazon API Gateway um, really allows our customers to develop and, 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 and deploy their event-driven uh, type uh, applications and and functions. That's right. In fact, I like to uh, broaden that definition of serverless more too and say, you know, I think everybody reaches for Lambda when they talk about serverless, but uh, I really like to say it's any of these services that you don't have to worry about managing and scaling yourself. So, you know, I put things like DynamoDB uh, in, in the same bucket, you know, or Amazon Cognito. Uh, there, there's a number of services that fall into that serverless category. And in, yeah, a, in a blog post I read recently, I forget the author, I wish I had remembered so I could give them credit, but they said, perhaps it would have been better if we used the term serviceful instead of serverless. And I liked the sound of that a lot. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, absolutely spot on there. And it, and it comes back to what that, those two words you mentioned uh, earlier there, Gabe, you know, the undifferentiated heavy lifting. And that's what, you know, serverless uh, uh, architectures is all about. It allows customers to focus on their applications and innovating at that level rather than uh, worrying about all the underlying uh, infrastructure. And, and so if we get back to the uh, the Amazon uh, EKS service that we just uh, um, generally, um, well, we, we, we made generally available, um, it is a Kubernetes uh, imp implementation, and, and in fact, based on the most recent data from the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, it's actually AWS, which is the leading environment with Kubernetes or Kubernetes deployments. Uh, about 57% of all companies who actually run Kubernetes do so on AWS. And this was one of the primary reasons why we brought out the Amazon EKS uh, service. Customers were telling us that Kubernetes is actually core to their IT strategy. You know, they're already running hundreds of millions of containers on AWS um, every week in a do-it-yourself type implementation. So we wanted to uh, uh, provide a service that will allow them to continue to running that, to continue to run that technology, but not actually have to worry about setting up and configuring the underlying infrastructure to support uh, Kubernetes. So. You know, very similar to how you mentioned with uh, the Amazon Neptune service for managed graph database, Amazon EKS simplifies the process of building, securing, operating, maintaining Kubernetes clusters and brings the benefits of 
container-based computing to organizations that really want to focus on building applications instead of setting up a Kubernetes cluster from scratch. Yeah, and another thing I like about EKS is that we're not running some special, slightly secret you know, flavor of, e of Kubernetes. It's actually open source Kubernetes and, and any changes that we make uh, or improvements we make are going to get pushed upstream as well. So it's I like that we're it's really uh, you know AWS participating in the open source community as well. Yeah, absolutely, and it's giving that uh, customers choice in terms of what container based technology they actually do want to run. That's right, and we're all about customer choice. But uh, there's more to the podcast than just announcing new services, right? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, if we maybe move on to a particular space that I know you're interested in, being a an avid mobile gaming um, a fan, as well as I understand you're a, a pretty much a subject matter expert in the mobile space when it comes to development. Um, can you tell uh, us a little bit about uh, what we've been doing in this particular domain? Look, you're right. One mobile game for iOS and Android, and everyone thinks you're an expert. <laughs> all, all joking aside, but maybe I should uh, I should plug uh, my game for a second. Yeah, go for it. Uh, okay. Uh, so uh, for all you <laughs> listeners out there, if you like puzzle games, uh, there's a game you can play. It's free uh, called Pollen Nation, like P-O-L-L-E-N, Nation. Uh, it's kind of two words squished together. It's a bee-themed puzzle game, hence the, uh, the pun on the word pollen and pollination, because I also like bad puns. Anyway, I won't say more than that. It's available on the, uh, the Apple uh, iOS store and the Android Google Play store. Uh, it's free. There's no in-app purchases. Well, sorry, there are in-app purchases, but you don't have to use them. I put something in there so that if people have fun playing the game and they want to toss me a couple bucks, they can, but there's absolutely no need for it. My goal was to just build a game that I was proud of, and I definitely succeeded with that. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for a new fun game to play, it won't cost you anything to try, uh, and you might like it. But anyway, awesome. fun things so, aside. So maybe, maybe yeah, well, huh? maybe you can take take the, take the listeners through how they could build their own games. Maybe talk, talk about some of the um, features and services they can use to help with their own mobile development. Yeah, sure. Uh, we, can, we can do that. Uh, so, you know, maybe let's say one of the features that, that you might need in any app you're building, uh, whether it's a game or otherwise, uh, is authenticating users, right? Uh, you want users to log in so you can, they can keep track of uh, their high scores or, or you know, maybe... Uh, where they are, their level persistence, this kind of stuff. Uh, so we have a service for this called Amazon Cognito uh, that really can help out when it comes to uh, authentication and authorization for mobile applications. Now, uh, this uh, lets users log in with uh, new credentials. They can you know, type a username or an email address and a password. But of course, most people don't like to do that. We like to let our users uh, log in with existing identity providers as well, like you know, uh, Facebook or Google or even uh, enterprise uh, identity providers. Uh, so you know, using SAML. So all that's available uh, with Cognito out of the box. So that means you don't have to write and run your own service to manage that. Uh, and Cognito can handle millions of users for you. Uh, so you know, have you had to do any of this stuff before, Dean? Uh, well, I must admit, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm an infrastructure guy, so I probably haven't uh, used it as much as probably most of our, our listeners out there. But I, I must admit, I have created a couple of sample mobile applications, uh, especially when I'm uh, trying to demo some of the features in the uh, mobile development space with uh, with AWS. Um, and so, actually, without with with well, sorry, with minimal development experience, I was able to use services like um, AWS Mobile Hub and also Amazon Cognito to demonstrate how easy it was to actually uh, uh, do some mobile uh, application development. 
on the AWS platform. Right. So if you've used Cognito for, for mobile apps before, you've probably had a case where uh, you wanted to grant users temporary access to credentials uh, so that they could use AWS resources uh, without you know you having to to have them make calls to a server so that your server would interact with the cloud resources, right? Uh, there's advantages to having your clients be able to talk to AWS resources directly uh, without you having to mediate those interactions. And Absolutely. Cognito and, and, makes and, and that must, super simple. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I must say, and also without having to hard code credentials into your application. Oh gosh, yes, well. thank you for, ex yeah, exactly. I mean, look, there, there are times when even I am guilty of hard coding credentials when I'm first banging together proof of concept or something, but uh, these days, uh, knowing what I know about how easy it is to get temporary credentials granted from Cognito, there's really no reason to not start doing that from the get-go. It's very, very easy uh, using the SDKs that, that we publish. And, and there are SDKs for you know, iOS, uh, Android, uh, and uh, on the web uh, with the JavaScript SDK. So it's there for you to use, and I encourage uh, people to check it out. If an infrastructure guy like me can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but there's one more thing Cognito can help with. And I, and I uh, alluded to this earlier in the context of, like, for example, uh, mobile games. And that is, have you ever used an app across multiple devices? Like you've got a game you're playing maybe on your phone when you're on the go uh, and maybe on a tablet at home? Yeah, absolutely. I do admit I have multiple devices. Uh, I am a bit of a techie. So, of course, I've got uh, all these different uh, devices. And, and depending where I am, I'll use a particular device. Right. Uh, me too. Uh, and you've probably, like me, run into cases where sometimes your progress or your state from one of uh, the apps you're using on, on one device, it doesn't sync with, with the other. When you pick it up and launch the app on your other device, you're in a different state, and that can be really frustrating. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you don't want to have these different profiles based on uh, the different devices that you're logging in from, right? Exactly. So Cognito also supports the ability to synchronize user profile data and bits of info, like maybe you know your progress or your high scores uh, in games or in levels uh, between devices automatically. That's awesome. So does that also mean if I'm uh, moving between different uh, devices as far as manufacturers, so whether, whether it's an Android-based device or an iPhone uh, or iOS-based device, does that also apply? Yeah, it totally should because it's it's syncing based on the authentication information, not based on like device ID. Uh, although uh, I should mention that another thing that's cool is Cogn that I haven't really talked about is Cognito also supports unauthenticated uh, users. So you can even grant temporary credentials to AWS services for unauthenticated users. And for that, uh, you know, obviously, the if you don't authenticate into an app on one device, there's not going to be a way for us to know that your other device uh, also belongs to you and some some identity that belongs to you to sync it with. So. If you've logged in, then yeah, the identity management should let the profile sync between. Okay, right. And, and speaking of sync um, uh, there, Gabe, uh, you know, maybe if we take a step back, still in mo mobile development, but, you know, we, we, we do live in a connected world. Uh, a majority of the time uh, we are connected, uh, connected to the internet. Um, but there are going to be times where you, for certain reasons, you are disconnected. Um, you know, you don't have that connection for maybe you're on a plane, although these days you have Wi-Fi access on a plane, but you might be in another country or um, where you don't have data or you might be just in a particular location um, where there's no uh, connectivity. You know, how can we create and, and configure, uh, develop mobile applications to handle both online and offline uh, configurations? Well, there's a number of ways to do it, but one service that was recently announced uh, is AWS AppSync, and I think maybe that's what you're alluding to. So let me talk about that. Yeah, sounds good. So AWS AppSync uh, is 
a service that is, acts as a managed GraphQL endpoint for you. Uh, and so this is sort of an implementation detail, but you know our listeners are, are pretty techie, so let's get into it. Uh, GraphQL, if you haven't heard of it before, it's not for querying graph databases like a lot of people think. Uh, you can certainly use GraphQL to talk to, to graph databases, but at its core, GraphQL is just a specification that says how clients uh, can query and mutate and subscribe to data from servers uh, and how those servers should respond to those requests uh, for data from clients. So it acts as a strongly typed contract uh, for requests and responses between clients and, and, and API servers. And uh, the, the nice thing about GraphQL is it lets clients specify only the information they want back for a particular query. So for example, I might have an API that lists events that are upcoming. And a mobile view might first say, I only want uh, the list of event names and the dates, but not the details, right? So if I know that I'm just showing a list of the, the titles of the events, I can query and say, list me the events, but only give me back the title and the date. And then if a user clicks on one of them, then I can query and say, give me the title, the date, the description, the attendees, Inside the attendees, give me each attendee's first name, you know, last name, et cetera. So you can kind of walk that graph of data on the back end, specifying what you need for a particular view. And that's why it's called GraphQL. And so AppSync is built with GraphQL. Uh, it, it's built to you know, serve GraphQL queries. But uh, there's another component to it, which is it's also made to help you with real-time uh, data subscriptions for, for cases when you are online and have connectivity. And so there... You know, your clients can subscribe to mutations that they're interested in knowing about when they happen from, from other places or even from themselves. And then uh, it scales up to millions of, of users. So uh, if I added a new event and you uh, were subscribed to know about all the events, you would get that notification uh, automatically. And it's just doing a you know, web socket connection behind the scenes uh, to make that happen. Now, the other thing is... Uh, we want to make it easy to handle cases where apps go offline, right? Because like you said, there are times when you have spotty network connectivity for one reason or another. And it can also be just because you want to optimistically render the results of the UI, uh, of an interaction in the UI before the server acknowledges the result, because sometimes that's that's good enough and it can create a snappier experience. So the AppSync mobile SDK that we have also makes it easy to do offline caching of data, uh, and you know, optimistic responses, uh, and we'll even handle uh, cases where uh, you need to uh, refresh that cache when you come online, uh, and uh, we'll do server-side uh, conflict resolution for you know mutations that maybe you did while you were offline and somebody else did too. Uh, we can let the client know about it as well. So there's, there's quite a lot of flexibility involved there. Uh, AppSync is a really great service, uh, and I'm pretty impressed with it. I've done a lot of hands-on work with it already, and uh, I would say if our listeners out there are interested in GraphQL. Don't think I'm just going to run my own GraphQL service because again, that's not what you want to be in the business of doing. That's that's not what your app, your business is all about, right? That's a means to an end. I would say try out AppSync, let AWS manage the infrastructure and the scalability and security for you so you can focus on your app. Absolutely. And, and, and where, where is it available today? Uh, it's available in a number of regions, uh, including ones in the United States, uh, Europe, and Asia Pacific. I don't have the exact list in front of me, but certainly in each of those geographies, uh, there's uh, AppSync availability. Okay, that's that sounds pretty cool. Um, now, continuing on the theme of mobile development, um, you know, we probably can't uh, 
cover mobile development without speaking about AWS Mobile Hub. Um, as the mobile guy, once again, can you maybe just give us a rundown of, of what Mobile Hub's all about, Gabe? Sure. Uh, mobile Hub, as you mentioned before, it's a great way to get started uh, managing and provisioning cloud resources for mobile applications. Uh, and this could be things like analytics, uh, user sign-in, uh, NoSQL database resources, object storage like S3, uh, running serverless functions or APIs, doing A-B testing, user messaging, and a lot more. Uh, so essentially, instead of writing cloud formation templates to provision the cloud resources for your mobile app, Mobile Hub gives you a web UI and a, a CLI tool for managing a collection of the cloud features that your app might use. And it makes it easy to configure those features right into your app with our SDKs for each different mobile language. Right. And so how would our listeners get started with it? I would say just head over to the Mobile Hub section of the AWS Web Console or install the AWS Mobile CLI uh, and manage it all in the comfort of your own terminal. Uh, for example, if you're making a new app and say you want to integrate user authentication with Cognito and object storage with S3, it's as simple as a few commands. You can just type AWS Mobile init and then AWS Mobile user sign in enable, AWS Mobile user files enable, and AWS Mobile push to make those changes into the cloud. And you'll end up with a config file suitable for importing into whatever SDK you're using uh, and you're off to the races. Sounds uh, pretty straightforward and easy enough. Uh, so Gabe, in such a continually changing environment where things are happening so quickly, um, things are changing, iterations are happening, you know, what about security? Um, of course, we need to ensure security is locked into every layer. So can you perhaps tell us more about some of the security features that we've recently announced? Absolutely. I think what you might be uh, alluding to is the fact that we uh, recently added server-side encryption to uh, Amazon Simple Queue Service, SQS. You know, we have this phrase, dance like no one is watching, encrypt like everyone is watching. And in addition to just being a nice uh, turn of phrase, I think it's a really sound advice as well. Uh, there's generally no reason not to encrypt as much stuff, as much data at rest as you can. Uh, and that's exactly what's going on here with the, the new announcement which is uh, we already had server-side encryption for SQS, but now it's available in 13 additional regions, which I think means that it's available in all of our regions except China. Uh, of right. course, for listeners who are unfamiliar with uh, SQS, that's our managed queuing service for reliable communications with distributed systems. That's what lets you decouple your application components so they can run and fail independently. Now, uh, the nice thing about server-side encryption is it helps you protect your sensitive data uh, with these encrypted queues when the data is at rest. So you always could communicate with SQS over, over secure uh, transport layers, uh, but now the, you know, the data can be encrypted at rest. Uh, so at each individual message level. Uh, so it's 256-bit right, AES encryption at, for each message in the queue. And, and that, the, the, the thing I like about this is that it's actually integrated with the AWS uh, key management service, like you mentioned, AWS KMS. Yes. And so essentially, it's just like a checkbox that uh, customers can select if they want to ensure that they not only now have the encryption uh, capabilities for data in transit, but now when it is in rest, uh, it is at rest uh, in the SQS service itself. That's right. Uh, and, you know, I, the encrypted data at rest for SQS is used by a, a number of our customers. It's great for regulatory or compliance use cases, especially, uh, whether that be in the fintech or healthcare. Uh, for example, Capital One is using SQS to migrate core banking applications into the cloud. And I'm sure that they're leveraging uh, encryption at rest. It would make sense. 
Right. And so uh, you mentioned before uh, and, and we're able to uh, provide the right answer with um, the regional services that we launched in back in 2006 and uh, SQS being one of those. So, right. of course, there's going to be quite a number of uh, SQS queues already out there. So how would I apply this particular um, new feature to those existing SQS queues? Well, that's a great question. So you don't have to uh, set up a new queue to take advantage of the encryption at rest uh, server-side encryption here. You can turn it on for an existing queue, uh, which is great news, uh, but it's important to note that any of your messages that are already in the queue are going to remain unencrypted uh, before you turn on the encryption. And then uh, when you turn on the encryption, it's only going to be messages that were added to the queue after that point that will be encrypted. That's great. Okay, so it could apply to those existing queues and, and your new queues as well. Um, maybe we can uh, move to uh, another new feature that we announced regarding um, authentication. Sure. Actually, this one was hugely popular uh, in my Twitter feed recently. I, I gave a tweet about this uh, and got the most retweets of anything I've tweeted about in a while. So I think this is uh, something that the community is excited about at large. Uh, and I think what you're referring to anyway is that now our application load balancer can simplify user authentication for applications because it can do authentication at the load balancer level now so that customers don't have to do that authentication you know, in their server-side code. Right, I see. So, so um, you know, it coupled with uh, Amazon Cognito, I believe the um, the application load balancer um, will, like you said, offload that uh, authentication requirements uh, from the actual application itself. So customers can really focus on the application and let some of these managed services like Amazon Cognito deal with the actual authentication and therefore can integrate with um, those uh, social identity providers, um, you know, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, for example. That's right, or other, any other OpenID Connect compatible uh, provider as well. Uh, and you know, it's not magic. How this works in practice is that uh, the uh, ALB, uh, you set up a authentication action uh, in a listener rule, and that action will check to see if there's a session cookie that exists on the incoming request and check that it's valid. And if it's valid, uh, then the ALB will route the request to a target group with a X AMZN OIDC star header. There's a bunch of headers there. So basically, Amazon OIDC headers, uh, related headers there. And those headers contain identity information uh, in the form of a JSON web token. And that's what the backend should use to uh, identify a user after verifying the token. And uh, you know, just to unpack that a bit, because maybe all of our listeners aren't familiar with what JSON web tokens are, uh, also called JWTs, uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, they're, they're covered in a spec. It's RFC 7519. Uh, and in short, they're just a way to share a set of information about a user, uh, which they call claims, between an identity provider and another service. Uh, there are some fields that are standardized in the spec, like using ISS to represent the issuer of a token, you know, EXP to share the expiry date of a token, et cetera. And of course, uh, each provider can add any number of provider-specific claims as well, uh, sharing things like maybe a user's username, an email address, their admin status, et cetera. Uh, and if you want to learn more about that, you can go to jwt.io. It's a good resource for learning more about JSON Web Tokens. So when your backend gets these, uh, this JSON Web Token in the header uh, from ALB, uh, what it needs to do is just uh, verify the signature uh, of that token to make sure it's legitimate. 
Uh, and if it is, then it can read the claims out of that token and react appropriately. It doesn't have to make another call back out to that identity provider to say, is everything okay? That's the whole point of the token is that the token contains everything uh, about the uh, original, uh, you know, authorization, I'm sorry, the original authentication, your server decides the authorization. So the authentication of the user uh, and what claims are associated with it, and then your server does something with those claims. Right. So, I mean, it, it's, it's obviously uh, maybe a bit hard to explain uh, over just a, a podcast, and we always want to give hands-on experience uh, to, our, to our users. So any recommendations on, on perhaps where uh, the listeners can go to to maybe learn more about this and, and get some hands-on uh, exposure? That's a great point. I mean, it's hard to listen to a lot of uh, specific technical details in a podcast without seeing something on the screen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, funnily enough, we have this awesome domain. Uh, I don't know how we got it, but uh, if you uh, want to see a demo of this in action, we have a very nice example at exampleloadbalancer.com. So you can go check it out there and see more information, uh, both uh, an example of it working uh, and also links to relevant information to get started doing this yourself with the application load balancers. Awesome. So, uh, Gabe, I know this has probably been a longer podcast than normal, but obviously just so much uh, things to go through and so many exciting new features and services to talk about. But unfortunately, we probably have come to the end of the podcast. Um, you now, we've obviously yeah. uh, spoken a lot about um, the, the development side and some of the developer tools that uh, our customers can use to allow them to focus on their applications rather than the underlying infrastructure. Now, we've spoken about the uh, evolution of computing. We've spoken about how to look at uh, mobile application development uh, on AWS. And, and also, we shared some interesting stats and, and events um, uh, related to uh, some of the, um, uh, the, the sessions and, and learning programs that we actually have in place. It's really been awesome to have you um, joining the podcast, really provided some great insights into how, uh, how the customers can actually use the AWS platform. Any par parting thoughts from you? Well, I would just say, listeners, remember, it's uh, still day one and it will always be day one. So there's lots more exciting content coming from us in future episodes as well. Awesome. Gabe, pleasure to have you. Uh, looking forward to um, doing a similar session with you uh, next time and perhaps a uh, tech TV as well. Thanks, Dean. It was awesome being on the show. Thanks all to you, you listeners and we will catch you on the next one. Bye. See you, everyone. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.